Welcome to Luma and Bloom, the podcast that empowers and enlightens. My name is Nick. And my name's Kate. And together, our goal is to shine a light on the dark conversations. On today's episode, I had the privilege of interviewing my co-host, Nick. Join me as we get an inside look into Nick's earlier years and upbringing and explore some of the experiences that have shaped her into the woman she is today. We hope you enjoy. Luma and Bloom is brought to you by the Joy Smith Foundation. Welcome to Luma and Bloom. This is back. our maiden voyage here. Uh, one <laughs> episode two. Episode two, exactly. And uh, the great part about the next few episodes are we just want to give you some backstory to who Kate and I are. So mm-hmm. today we're kind of touching on my story. Yep. Um, and we're going to get to hear Kate's story a little later on, which I'm really excited for. I mean, I know my story. I tell my story a lot. I'm like, this is kind of <laughs> boring already. But... Um, it is, we feel like it's very pivotal for our viewership and our listeners to understand why the podcast is a passion for both of us and what kind of fueled that fire to get it started. So, yeah. And I mean, it's good background, um, to know where we're coming from, why we're here, why we're so passionate and, um, you know, how, how we met as well, how we became Nick and Kate, and <laughs> that story will it's unfold. It's a cute story. But yeah, so our first, I think this will probably be a two-parter, because we've got a lot to unpack. Oh, yes. <laughs> and then... I don't have a book, but I might write one someday. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see what the feedback is to my story here. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, so I guess we'll just dive right in. And Deep dive. We'll see where this takes us. Into the life of Nick. <laughs> This is all about Nick. Okay, so, I mean, I've heard your story lots, and I obviously... You're probably sick of it at this point. No, I (laughs) I love it. (laughs) But I think, you know, I want to start from the very beginning, because I want to be able to paint the picture of your life as a whole. Um, So, I mean, I'm sure at this point we've already mentioned it, but you are yourself a survivor of human trafficking and I think when people first hear that for the first time that's all they hear that's all they see and I think a lot of times we get put into these boxes and that's what we kind of become known for but I think it's going to be really important because that is not your entire story that is a very small portion of your story so I want to be able to get into what made you you, you know, how you became to be Nicole, who you are today, the person that I know and the person that our listeners are going to get to know. But I think it's just really important. So let's start from the beginning. We'll go way on back. <laughs> Roll it back. Yeah. Long time. Yeah. We will have your mom in one of our episodes. So oh, they will so get excited. to know your family a little bit. Yeah, but my mama. But talk about your upbringing like well as a child um so yeah like we're gonna have my mom on later so I'm very curious to hear what she has to say about my child (laughs) because this is a totally different perspective but from from myself 
I do feel like I had a very, like I had a very solid childhood. I had a very solid, you know, marriage um, to, to observe growing up. Like my parents had like a really stable and healthy relationship. Like, I mean, every marriage and relationship is not perfect. So it's not like I think that my parents had, you know, perfect life, perfect marriage, but they're fantastic people. Um, I was raised in a very Mennonite community, nothing against Mennonites. I am one. So, (laughs) um, but yeah, I think that there was a lot of, um, there was a lot of church family involved in, in my early years. And, um, I would say, I guess, you know, I'm very hesitant always to share too much that's going to paint other people in a negative light. But from my perspective, I would say I did struggle with rejection fairly, fairly early on. Um, I had friends growing up, but I think I struggled to make deeper and meaningful connections because it was a small town. Right. The pool to draw friendships from is very limited. Like I think there was three kids in my grade one was a boy and one was a girl so naturally the girl was my best friend and i would say like our relationship was really good like she's a fantastic young lady but i mean like you only got one friend right Mm -hmm. so yeah i would say growing up in a small town has a unique set of challenges Mm -hmm. but i would say probably the most pivotal turning point in my childhood was when i was seven years old I was out in our family's yard. So we lived in a very small town at that time. And my parents were outside doing yard work. It was a very typical thing growing up. We spent a lot of time outside. Mm -hmm. And my siblings and I were playing outside. And the neighbor's dog had kind of wandered onto our, our yard. And so this was a dog that we kind of knew. So I had kind of gone up to the dog. And I was petting him. And my brother came. And he was also petting the dog. And then all of a sudden my brother lost interest and I turned around to leave and I heard the dog growl behind me and I turned around and I don't personally remember the experience. I just remember what my mom told me. Right. Um, But the dog jumped up with its paws on either one of my shoulders and basically just latched onto my face like this. So his bottom jaw went through my bottom jaw and knocked out my two front teeth, teeth, which were the only adult teeth I had at the time. Right, at like, seven. My only real chiclets <laughs> got knocked out. But then his top jaw actually severed my septum. Like, so it severed right through my nose and was... And, you know, looking back now, I, I, I feel very fortunate because if the dog had bitten me any higher, right. it probably would have taken my right eye and any lower it would have punctured my jugular. Right. So I was actually extremely fortunate because if y- you can probably see, but the scar on my, bo- like it barely missed my, like it will yeah. have grazed my jawbone. So, you know, I was very, very fortunate, but obviously it's a very traumatic experience. Mm-hmm. My parents watched this happen. So they were there. My parents were there. So my mom turned around because she heard something and the dog was up on me, latched onto my face. And my mom just screamed the dog's name and he released. And what transpired after that was just a whirlwind. Like I remember getting thrown into my parents' 
vehicle and I don't still to this day I'm like where did where were my siblings like what how, like what yeah but all I remember was like my mom holding this towel to my face and just all the way like the closest emergency room was 20 minutes away and the whole ride she's just like don't fall asleep don't fall asleep don't fall asleep I Do guess you remember that I remember it like it was yesterday like yeah. it's interesting the things that are forever burned in your brain yeah but I also remember getting into the local emergency and watching like my mom threw me over her shoulder so like my face was over her back and I just remember watching the blood fall from my face and splatter on the floor that's so scary so at seven like how do you process what's going on well you, you, you don't do but you don't yeah. and like it's it's interesting the things that you pick up on like I remember like people poking their heads out of rooms running through the emerge mm -hmm. and just the look of sheer terror on their face wow and you know, I think my mom was screaming. I don't remember, but like, apparently right. it was like quite the ordeal. Of course. And I think in that moment, you know, I just kind of compartmentalized anything and like was in my own silent little world. And I was just picking up on like the oddest details at the time. So what had happened was um, the doctor there had stitched up my bottom scar because he kind of just looked at my face and I think he was like, uh, this is way out of my qualifications. Small town small emergency town, room. Yeah. Yeah. So you don't he, have all the, the abilities no. like you would in a big town hospital. No. And like, I, I think he just did the best with what he had. Yeah. Which I mean, it wasn't great, mm -hmm. but he tried. He needed you know? to try and keep your face together. Yeah. So um, they put me in an ambulance and sent me to winnipeg um and there is a really amazing plastic surgeon here that specialized in in children's surgery and um he's the one that reattached my nose i mean it's kind of a gory story but that really is kind of how it was so i actually saw like later on the before and after pictures of like what my face looked like before he stitched it up mm -hmm. and it is quite gruesome um and so I, how long was it when they like from the time you arrived to the hospital to when they were like sending you off to the hospital again like was it a few hours I wouldn't even know yeah I wouldn't remember I just remember getting in the ambulance and the EMT I think gave me a teddy bear mm. and just I asked him right away like can I go to sleep now I was just so exhausted Aww. and he's like yeah honey you can go to sleep and when I woke up I was in Winnipeg so wow. Yeah, and um, I mean, I don't remember a lot. I do remember receiving, like, very excellent care when I was here. Like, the Children's mm -hmm. Hospital in Winnipeg, I think, is a pretty fantastic place. I don't know how it is now, but they were great to me Yeah. Um, when I was there. So, you know, but without, you know, going over and over all the stuff that happened with my dog attack, I think the, the long-lasting effects... You know, it wasn't even the trauma in the moment. It was just like, I think my mom's told me before, like she just remembered thinking like my poor, beautiful daughter, like this is gonna, she's scarred for life. Like it's my face, right? Mm -hmm. And you know, it's probably easy now, like if you're seeing on video or if you've seen pictures of me to kind of breeze past that and be like, oh, it's not very noticeable. But Honestly, I Honestly, mean, you really wouldn't know. But that's because the thing. I like I remember the first time hearing your story and you talking about your dog attack and this was years ago. 
And, I mean, it was at quite some distance because it was up in a public setting. So I wasn't up close. But even when I did, you know, actually get to see you face to face, like, it, it really is not noticeable anymore. And it's until you pointed out that I think people can see it. But they did a fantastic job. Oh, my goodness. Like, really, I can be a personal testament to how far modern medicine has come because honestly if you saw the pictures of the like what my face looked like even after my nose was reattached and everything else like it's just a night and day difference Mm -hmm. um obviously I've had multiple reconstructive surgeries since then I've had to have several rhinoplasties which is basically the fancy term for nose job but I had so much scar tissue in my nose. I couldn't breathe often. Like kids in school would make fun of me. They're like, you sound like Darth Vader. I'm like, I can't help it. (laughs) (laughs) I'm a heavy mouth breather because I can't (laughs) breathe through my nose. But because I lost my adult teeth at the time too, as you can imagine, like when you're 12, 13 and 14, you're already going through an awkward phase. But for me, that phase was especially awkward because I had to get braces. So what, what had happened is originally to give me teeth, they, I don't know if it's called a prosthesis still, but it was basically like, a, they call, I think they call it a flipper now, oh, where yeah. they have a mold made of the roof of your mouth <clears throat> and then they attach your teeth to whatever part of that. And it sits almost like a retainer, but it doesn't right. go over your other teeth. And that was my teeth. So as you can imagine, like at this point in time, I feel like I had to develop a very strong sense of humor. And I don't know if other people can relate to this, but for me, the best way I dealt with trauma was to kind of try and make light of it. And I noticed like I still do it sometimes where I try and like, you know, just laugh off certain nuances. And in some ways I think it's healthy now because Sometimes you just need you just need to laugh about things because we can make it so serious and so overbearing sometimes where it's just like laughter is the best medicine appropriately, though. So how long was it like it it happened when you were seven and then for how many years afterwards were you going through surgeries, whether because that that's not a quick process? Oh, no. Like, I think my last surgery, major surgery was in my early 20s wow yeah so i did not know that long like long term i think uh one of my more major surgeries was when i was 12. Mm. uh i switched surgeons because the surgeon i had before retired and the new surgeon went in and he did a rhinoplasty to fix the scar tissue he also did like laser surgery over my scarring and it really Mm. reduced it like flattened everything out and just reduced the redness in my scarring yeah and then my bottom scar here on my chin which honestly has been no end of issues like I shouldn't say it because I mean it is what it is but like the first doctor who stitched it probably should have just left it because it's been an ongoing thing of trying to get it to the place where it's less noticeable and it's now it's at the point where I'm just like I just accept how it is it's what it is what it is yeah um but at that time when I was 12 he cut around my scar and re-stitched it 
because what had happened, the way it would heal is that when I smiled, it would pucker and like crease. Oh, okay. So it just made that less noticeable. Like your face right now, you're like, oh my God. I just, I can't even imagine. <laughs> it was a lot. That is a lot. So, Especially you know, for someone so young. At 12, I remember going to school with bandages on my face. And, That's you know, tough. at that point, I think you develop as a child a certain level of, I'll, I'll use the word resilience. Because I want to paint it in a positive way that even though I did have PTSD from my dog attack and there was trauma-related issues with that, I really early on became a very resilient child. Yeah, You know, you just have to get to a point where you're willing to tune out what other people have to say and not take it personally. And I think I did it on the outside, but on the inside, I did internalize a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, back then there wasn't the same type of like therapy accessible. There was less known about trauma. And so, I mean, we've come a long way with mental health as well, even though we're probably not where we should be, but, um, but yeah, it was, it was ongoing. Like, I think there was a stretch of probably close to like 15 years of surgeries and, um, dental work and whatnot. But yeah, that's, that's a lot. I I honestly didn't realize it it had taken that that long for yeah. you. Yeah, like I was twenty one <laughs> or twenty two, maybe even a bit later when I got my final permanent bridge that I have now. So my top six teeth is a is one piece that has slid over like the four I guess they're anchor teeth to brace the two in the front so like my two front teeth are stainless steel and porcelain if you're a hockey player you're matching yeah we match (laughs) um luckily I married a hockey player so he gets it (laughs) he probably has just as much dental work done as I do but um that was a sore spot for me too for a while because at that time around 12 shortly after that I had gotten that surgery done I had to get braces and what they had done is because I kept breaking that flipper the the last time I broke it I didn't bother getting it fixed soon enough and my eye teeth grew closer together so I had to have braces with a spring between my two front teeth oh, to push no. my eye teeth apart. <laughs> so if you can imagine being an awkward teenager, imagine being an awkward teacher teenager with no front teeth and braces. <laughs> and that was me for two years oh, man. of like early adolescence. So, yeah. you know, like you just, oh my word, I look back now and I'm like, wow, I can't, I really honestly can't believe that I, you know, managed to make it through all of that. I would say like as wonderfully supportive as my family was at that time I think people just are people yeah they don't mean to be like ignorant or insensitive but I think often like when we already have those sensitivities they can leave very deep internal emotional wounds so kids my age weren't kind. I got bullied and teased a lot for my physical appearance at the time. Um, and so, you know, it really did shape the way I saw myself. I would say, especially as a teenager, I just felt so awkward. Like, 
I remember I was very boy crazy. <laughs> and I always just felt like like all my friends, like all the boys had crushes on like my friends and you know, I was just kind of there. Yeah. And so I very quickly became one of the boys. I was very much a tomboy because it was like, well, you know, I want to be able to hang out with the boys too, even if it just is as a friend. And so I would say the first time a boy took romantic interest in me was actually probably one of the more healthy relationships I ever had. But he was a little bit older, really super sweet guy. I was 16. So like, still young but like old enough to go on like a first date like very innocently and uh yeah he was very respectful he treated me very well um so I did have one good experience with the guy before before the proverbial poop hit the fan but (laughs) yeah I mean I feel like being that age regardless of who you are it's gonna be awkward like those early you know teenage even like going through puberty teen tween you know that that age group is awkward no matter who you are oh my hair got curly at that time too wow i know it was such a random thing i was like (laughs) oh just hit it with me all at once here yeah but i think like as a young kid I mean, that really shapes who who you are. And I know we've talked a lot about, you know, your dog attack and what happened with that. But I think just knowing how much it shaped your life at that time, like, I really want to talk a little bit about how that impacted your self-image and the way you viewed yourself. Because I think that's a hard thing at any age, you know, going through puberty. I mean, being seven, you've just barely learned about who you are as an individual, let alone trying to figure out your place in this world. And then to have something so significant and traumatic happen at that young age, I mean, you've spoken a little bit about it, but back then there was a lot of emphasis, I think, on body image and body type. I mean, I remember being young and going into the grocery stores and on every magazine was plastered how to lose 50 pounds in you know five weeks like it was just crazy stuff right so I think at that point it was kind of before social media so that wasn't playing a factor at the point but it still really did shape you and the way you viewed yourself and I think that's a really important conversation to have and I'd be interested to hear and how you think it shaped yourself well, I do think that it did have a very deep impact on the way I perceived myself, just in the sense of, I think society has been like this for quite a while, but I picked up on it a lot, even as a young woman, was just how heavy the emphasis was on physical appearance. And to be honest, like I think most people feed that without purposefully doing it because we are a very appearance-driven society in North America. And to be honest, like, we, I think we all recognize deep down that it shouldn't be that way. But we generally tend to put a lot of emphasis on how someone presents themselves to us. We still do it to this day. Um, But I think for myself, 
it was an internal monologue that I battled a lot right from the time I had my accident until like it way into my adulthood was just that like I don't fit the stereotypical norm of beautiful I don't fit this like I mean I grew up with I guess Kate Moss yeah you know that type of uber skinny supermodel blonde hair blue eyes like that was the stereotype for mm -hmm. beauty you know for a really long time like you got Paris Hilton you got like all these very like tall skinny blonde girls and that right. was like early 2000s I guess so mm -hmm. you know that was heavily influencing pop culture at the time and we yeah. we don't necessarily always acknowledge how much influence that pop culture does have on North American society but it's huge. it is and you know for someone who I guess as I hit puberty I became very curvy almost overnight so I went from being very stick skinny very naturally slender to being like plickety plack like <laughs> just like the hips came out the hips came out <laughs> the little booty came out like and it was not like I, I went to a small town high school right um so there wasn't very many girls who looked like me in high school and yes I know I look I'm pretty much like I'm just a white girl right but you know when everyone's blonde hair blue eyes or you know brown hair very fair for someone like me who is like all around like a darker complexion very curvaceous you know whatever well, and you I would also like to point out you're quite tall as well yes I'm five foot ten <laughs> so that didn't bode well in my favor yeah. either you know it makes you kind of feel like a freak of nature and the interesting thing <laughs> is I feel like even now at that age you just want to fit in you do you want to blend in you want to fit in you want to you know kind of go with the flow you don't want to stand out mm-hmm and if you do stand out, you almost take it so far because you're like, well, you know, if I'm going to stand out, I'm going to be really outrageous. Right. Um, so I would say, like, I didn't have a wide friend group in high school. I kind of did stick to myself a little bit. Like, I had my close friend from, you know, grade school, the one girl in my grade. I mean, going off to high school, the school is a little bigger. So there's obviously, but at that point, your friend groups are established. Yeah. So I had a very small group of friends and I was not popular. I did not blend in. I did not fit in. I grew and was raised with fairly strict morals. Mm hmm in a lot of ways, I appreciate that upbringing. I do think sometimes it was a little, like, pressed a little too hard. There wasn't a whole lot of freedom to make mistakes. Not that that's a bad thing either, but I think I really did push back a little harder when I did have my freedom because it was the first time I had the freedom to make some mistakes for myself. Yeah. Um, but I think that all in all, like, like I appreciate the moral, like I said, the moral upbringing that I had, but it did kind of isolate me a little bit in high school as well because I didn't party, I didn't drink. I was very determined that I just wanted to remain 
abstinent until I got married. And that was something that was really important to me. Right. And so it's why I didn't really date a whole lot in high school. Like I think I had one boyfriend in high school and then I kind of started dating a friend of mine, like the year that I graduated and it was fairly innocent. Like, you know, it was more like just, I was dating my friends at the time. So yeah, I think that's like a healthy approach, I guess, to dating as a teenager, mm -hmm. but. Which, I mean, I don't always like using this term, but would you say it was somewhat sheltered growing oh, up? Oh, for sure. I was definitely sheltered growing up. Um, I remember there were times where like my parents would take me to like, I don't want to say public, but like to socialize with other families and groups. And whenever there was like smoking or alcohol there, I instantly felt uncomfortable because it's not my parents don't drink. They don't smoke. They're very like very straight edge, straight laced people. So mm -hmm. I remember that being a shock to me, like even like 12 and 13 years old. And like, as I grew older, like I had aunts and uncles that were like drinkers and smokers and you know, whatever else. So it, I, I obviously became more accepting of it, but it was never something that was on my radar where I'm just like, Oh yeah, you know, that's the kind of lifestyle I want to have. I was just very, like you said, like sheltered. Right. What did you want to be when you grew up as a kid? Oh my goodness. <laughs> so as like a very young kid, I was obsessed with marine life. Really? Yes, I was determined. Like the ocean? Yes, I wanted to be a marine biologist. No I loved way. the ocean. I loved beaches. I think part of that was when after my dog attack, my mom tried so hard to help with my PTSD in the ways that were available to her and at the time I don't know where the idea came from but she's like I'm gonna get this kid into like these relaxing whale sounds and <laughs> waves and you it's know it's like when you put on like background like yeah. rain on the window and it's yeah. just like calming but like I actually think it did help a lot because it did have that calming effect on me. And I don't know if it was from that or just, That's I think so I don't want to date myself <laughs> here, but like Lisa Frank was a big thing. You probably are too young for this, yeah. I don't. but Lisa Frank was a big thing <laughs> when explain. I was in school. So Lisa Frank, everybody's going to be like this old lady, <laughs> but Lisa, there might be two people that know she who. would make like cartoony, like impressions of animals like tigers and dolphins and whales but they would always be in like bright technicolor and sparkle and like as a girl was this like online no like there's nothing online i know remember? that's why i'm confused okay, but she where, would do where would she put these she things? it's like school supplies and that kind of stuff like she it was a whole brand oh like you could pop into walmart and yes there it, it was it was in walmart gotcha. so it was on like items oh yes i see it was the big thing okay like lisa frank was the thing to have anyways a lot of our viewers are gonna be like oh my word <laughs> anyway so i th i think it was partially that too but like so i just did you have like dolphins yeah okay so just on a side note here yeah dolphins were legit my favorite animal 
for as long as I can remember. And my dream was to swim with the dolphins, like my whole life. And then when my husband and I went on our honeymoon, I got to swim with the dolphins. It was like a lifelong (laughs) dream fulfilled. It's like the little girl in me was like, I should have been a marine biologist. (laughs) I love that. I know. It was great. Like, I think I borderline cried when I got in the water. I was like, oh, like, I just want (laughs) to pat them and touch them. Like... Yeah. So do you still like dolphins? I, I love dolphins. I, need an I really do. I really <laughs> do. Like swimming with the dolphins, I'm like, I just, just made my love of dolphins even. They're such an intelligent animal. Yep. Like I I swam with dolphins once too. I was pretty young, but I do remember that experience and it was quite if you haven't Quite swam something. with dolphins, you need to swim with the dolphins. I'm just saying. So you were interested in all things marine life. I was an animal obsessed child. Yeah. Like my mom had me in horse 4-H, so I was a little bit cowgirly as well, mm-hmm. which is a fun fact that lots of people probably wouldn't know about me. But <laughs> um, lo- like cats, dogs, like even after my dog attack, still loved dogs, love like just an animal lover. Mm-hmm. I see that in my oldest boy actually. He's totally an animal. Oddly obsessed with roadkill, but he loves <laughs> animals. <laughs> I just I don't know like, that those two yeah, like, I know together. it's so <laughs> random. Like we'll be driving down the road, he's like, is that is that a dead raccoon on the road? And he's just like, can we stop and look at it? I'm like, wait okay this is just a little bit too weird for me but (laughs) because he's so like loving yeah of animals it's just a very bizarre combo but anyways (laughs) wow so did you ever think about studying in university to go down that path you know what interestingly enough by the time I graduated from a high school I should probably put in here that like school was a real struggle for me and I couldn't understand it for the longest time. Like I actually just thought I was stupid and I know this is going to sound not nice at all, but I legitimately just thought I like had a learning disability Mm. and now knowing what I do, I realize like I had PTSD, which obviously affects your ability to process information the same way as a healthy brain. But on top of that, I'm pretty sure I had ADHD and probably still do. Not that I want to use that as a crutch, but Mm. I would say it is a very real contributor as to my lack of ability to concentrate in school. Mm. So school was a real challenge. I really had a hard time like passing all my classes Mm -hmm. and it's so funny because even today you're like your mental math is so good I'm like oh my gosh there was two times today alone that we were trying to figure out you whipped out out your calculator yeah oh calculators (laughs) all the way I hated doing those like speed math like sheets that you did in elementary school did you ever do that no it was like basically just I wouldn't remember like I hated school oh it was like a piece of paper and it just had like oh there were so many like rows and rows and rows of like questions and I mean when you were little it was like addition subtraction but then as you got older it was like multiplication division and you had like a minute and you had to write down as many answers as you could we did have that it was called minute math minute math yes yes okay okay I hated that yeah, I, was I wasn't a fan either. I'm horrible at it. I, I'm not going to lie. This is 
gonna tell everybody who, a lot about who I was as a kid, but I sat beside the smartest kid in my class just so I could copy all their answers. <laughs> Oh, I wish I was joking, but I think I'm about it now. I was like, no wonder I didn't do well in school because in my early years when I struggled, I was just like, oh, I'll just copy down all her answers. I made sure I got a few wrong on purpose, okay, so that the teacher wouldn't expect that I was copying my neighbor's work. I can't believe I'm thinking about this now. Like, oh, I'm God. like, oh my word. Okay, so moving on. But yes. <laughs> High school was a struggle. So to answer your question, I don't think post-secondary school was something that I ever thought realistically about. When mm -hmm. I entered into high school, I really wanted to be a nurse. Okay. And so I, I took pre-calculus math because I had heard that it was a... Because you're good at math. Well, prerequisite. <laughs> um, I dropped out of pre-calc with 28%. <laughs> hey, that's okay. I'd be in the same boat. I failed miserably. Pre-cal is a different beast. Let's be and honest. Like, I mean, do we use pre-calculus no. in other everyday society? No. Mm, I know. You know, if you're a teacher, you what can write it? me an angry letter. Is it a T18 or what was that calculator that you needed for pre-cal? Oh, I don't remember. Yeah, like a T18 or something. Or I don't something. know. That's probably wrong. We can have people write us in with all these facts <laughs> yeah, that they want. tell us what the calculator Yeah, is please correct us. Um, so, Yeah. You know, I think when I flunked out of pre-calc, I just, I kind of gave up on on the scholastic part of, of my future because I was like, well, I don't think I'm going to do any better in university if I'm struggling with, with high school. And so I just kind of gave up on that, to be honest. Right. Did you have a plan after high school of like what what you wanted to do? Like when you graduated, where... Where did your life turn? So I really honestly, more than anything, wanted to travel. Hmm. I wanted to see the world. And I think that was something that my mom really picked up on. So when I graduated from high school, I spent the... I can't remember what I did that summer. I think I worked for my... I think I worked for my parents. I think I worked on the farm, operating equipment, driving the tractor driving the combine and then that fall um my mom put me on a plane with family to go to south africa Ooh. where we actually have some friends down there and so it was kind of her effort to like get me to spread my wings a little bit and to be honest like i think i made some questionable decisions while i was there because it was me and my cousin living in a family friend's beach house and we were there for three months and we just had like free range and because my cousin at the time led a very different lifestyle than what i was used to i was very easily impressionable because it was just him and i was that kind of your first time like outside of you know this strict life yeah. with your parents yeah, so basically to make a long story short, like I would say for the most part it was like teenage experimentation just in the sense I did start drinking. I partied a little bit with my cousin and I start picked up a very bad habit of smoking cigarettes. So compared to what some of young people get in now, I feel like the way I dabbled in it still not good. And I don't condone any of it, really. Mm -hmm. Like, I think smoking is horrible for you. I think even starting to drink at any age probably isn't the best life choice. But 
I did it. So, you know, it was it was a chance I felt like for me to spread my wings and make some mistakes. And, mm-hmm. you know, I had made a couple mistakes, but for the most part, like it was fairly innocent. Right. Um, but when I moved home after that three months, I think because I had dipped my foot in the waters of having a little bit of my freedom, I did become a little bit rebellious with my parents. Like, so there was that kind of dynamic that kind of started that my parents were obviously a little bit unhappy with some of the decisions that I made. Mm -hmm. The time I went to South Africa, I had a boyfriend that I had started dating like just before graduation and I still to this day I was like oh you know I I broke up with him while I was in South Africa and I'm pretty sure I broke his heart and but it was one of those things where I'm like well I'm out here partying and he's a nice guy he might as well find someone else while I'm here because Hmm. yeah see that's interesting because the first thing that I thought of when you said that was Do you think you did that? Because you say he was a nice boy. Do you think you did that because you didn't feel worthy? Yeah, absolutely. Like you were like, go off and find someone better. Pretty much. Um, I think deep down, if if, if we do a deep dive into that, I think even my first boyfriend at 16 that treated me with so much respect Mm -hmm. and so much care he was just so sweet I think even then I didn't feel deserving of that because I couldn't figure out like well I'm scarred I'm ugly is how I saw myself um I don't deserve to be treated this way because you know I just didn't feel that which we know I mean it's it's a lie but uh that was the lie that I believed so I think yeah I mean you're right that's a good observation because at that time I'm pretty sure that was what fueled that decision it's like you know what I'm not making the best choices right now he's a really nice guy I don't need to subject him to this I mean he was very concerned for me at that time because I had kind of told him like you know I'm I'm not making the best decisions well, he went into a tailspin and like called my parents and they're like, he's like, you need to bring her home. She's just in a bad way. And my parents are like, I, I can't remember the, the dial. I'll have to ask my mom about this. Yeah. Can't remember exactly what happened, but my parents were basically like, you know what? She's 18. She's going to make her own decisions. Like, I'm sorry you got hurt in all of this, but yeah, you know, we kind of just got a letter. We got a letter do her thing. Mm-hmm when you came back from that trip did you have any plans for your future because I know like at that age everyone's always asking you like what's what's next what's your plans what are you doing it it can be a very challenging time especially at you know 18 19 years old trying to figure out what you want to do for the rest of your life it's it's near impossible but I think I always really felt and I don't I don't know whether this was like related to my past experiences or is just part of who I am as a person but I think I really struggled for a long time like even into adulthood feeling like I had a sense of purpose or direction for my life yeah it was kind of always like flying by the seat of my pants and you know you see it a lot in culture today 
where people just do what feels good in the moment. And mm-hmm. I did kind of get sucked into that a little bit because it was like, well, I just want to have fun. And I mean, I should probably state at this point, maybe this is a good entryway into it. But when I came home, I got a job as a lifeguard at uh, like a water park. And the staff there was a lot of fun. I mean, there was some some drinking involved, but like nothing crazy. But the girl that I actually moved in with at the time was a little bit beyond like rebellious. Hmm. And it, it just, I feel like it goes to show how easily we are influenced by the people that we're with. And I am not blaming her because I am responsible for my own decisions at that time. But mm-hmm. she definitely heavily influenced me to kind of push the boundaries a little bit more. So. Mm-hmm. I mean, even though I was kind of dabbling in drinking at the time, I don't think I was completely off the rails. I think I was just doing what a lot of teenagers do and just getting that out of their system. Right. But there was a time when at this time I was 19 years old and I had been hanging out with this crew and this girl I was living with had introduced me to this new group of friends through, you know, people she knew and we had gone um we had gone out together and we had had a couple drinks and from what I remember that night because my friend was drinking I had decided that I was gonna drive so I was only limiting myself to one maybe two drinks probably still too much but as a teenager at that time that was considered rational not condoning well and I just do want to say too back then what was allowed is, you know, was much more lenient than yeah. what's today. The so. legal limit, I think, was a little bit more lenient. Yeah. Um, but even, like, even stating that, like, probably wasn't smart for me to even make that decision. Yeah. But, I mean. You should never drink and drive. Never drink and drive. I have a funny story about that later. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Not that drinking and driving is funny, but I'll just drop it now because we still attend church it's a very small church and all my kids attend Sunday school there and we have like a children's feature during each church service and the woman leading the the children's feature was like does anyone know what the ten commandments are and my middle son's like don't drink and drive (laughs) the whole congregation is like a pretty sheltered church my parents both burst out laughing and like I was just dying because I was like clearly the church knows what we are trying to teach our children it's like we're not teaching them the ten commandments we're teaching them not to drink and drive but anyways at least he's got that oh yeah like just yeah he's the one with a very quick wit but um but anyways getting more serious at that time I had made that decision. I was very adamant about not drinking and driving. And basically what ended up happening is one of the guys that my friend had introduced me to roofied my drink, took me home, and that was my experience and how I lost my virginity. And I was 19 at the time. Um... And to be honest, other than my dog attack, I would say that that was probably one of the singular most detrimental situations that I can think of that just really did a number on how I saw myself. Because up until that point, 
you know, I do think with being raised a little bit more sheltered, you know, back then there was, I think, an, I, I want to say nuance, but I like to call it a little bit of toxic purity culture. And I think there are a lot of conversations kind of surfacing about this now, like especially in, in religious and church circles about how especially young girls were ingrained with this whole idea of like your virginity, your purity is like the most sacred thing ever. And to be honest, it's, it's not totally wrong, right? Mm -hmm. Like our, our purity is something that should be important to us, but it was so heavily emphasized that for, for someone in that situation that almost like was in, indoctrinated and I don't like using that word as a very strong word, but was heavily influenced that your virginity is like a badge of honor that you get to give somebody someday to have that taken away from you right. and feeling like your value was subsequently ripped from you as well. Just it, for me, it was just like, so I'm not beautiful. I have a scarred face. I have, I'm obviously emotionally damaged and now I don't even have my virginity to give to somebody someday. And what man is going to want me? And it was that thought process that just th threw me into a downward spiral. Like I just, I, I allowed my mind to dive into this pit of depression and despair of feeling so unvaluable and so unloved and so unwanted. And, you know, when you combine that with, you know, even just the, the slight rejections that I felt as a teenager of like, even boys in my youth group, you know, not taking any interest in me at all. And like, uh, my parents sent me to Bible college before, I think it was from 18 to 19. No, it was from 19 to 20. So at that point, I had experienced that loss of my virginity. When you went to Bible college? Right before I went to Bible college. And so my parents kind of encouraged me to go to Bible college because they're like, well, you know, Christians are a very accepting group of people. We're supposed to be anyway. Um, so let's send you to Bible college, you know, maybe you'll meet a nice guy there. And, you know, I, I appreciate the sentiment. Like the joke is like, send your kids to bridal college to get them married off. I have heard this before. And that did not work for me Yeah, because I don't fit the mold of, well, at that time, what I had been raised to think is like a good Christian girl. I wasn't super quiet and submissive and whatever. I think submissive is something that someone earns. I mean, I think we do, there's, there's a level of honor and respect that we need to give people. But I think sometimes like that submissiveness, like it was almost like a swear word for me at that point, because I was taught submit, submit, submit you know, a wife is supposed to submit to her husband. And, you know, it wasn't directly communicated, 
But in some church circles, the emphasis is so heavily pushed. The man's the head of the household. The man is this. The man is that. Like, I think that's why I went through an entire identity crisis as a teenager because I didn't feel feminine. I didn't feel womanly. I didn't feel beautiful. And that's the value system that we place so heavily on women is that beauty, that femininity, that softness, that motherly, nurturing, whatever. And I was like, I'm none of these things. I'm outspoken. I'm loud. I think I'm funny. Um, (laughs) And, you know, I'm super tall. I like, I just don't fit into that box of like, Proverbs 31, good Christian woman. And I carried that, that wound with me, even into Bible college. And Mm -hmm. my experiences there, and I don't want to knock Bible college, I think it's a great place really drove the nail in to that way of thinking because the Christian guys that I was around were nice. They were nice guys, but I knew for a fact none of them were remotely interested in me because I did not fit that mold of good, submissive Christian girl, and I was damaged goods. So, you know, there's that on top of it. Right. Did your parents know about what had happened when they sent you to Bible college? Like, was that, did that play a part in why they wanted to? I don't think that necessarily is what triggered it, but I think my parents always kind of sensed that I needed healing. And because they didn't really know how to help me, they kind of try, and I do not want to make the, like my parents to this day, I love and respect my parents so much because they really did the best with what they were given at the time. And that's all you can ask. But I think because they were so unequipped to deal with the heaviness of all my trauma, my lived experience at that point to be able to just push me onto somebody that would have been an expert or would have been more experienced in these areas seemed like the most rational explanation or solution for them. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you haven't already, please make sure to like, subscribe, follow us on our social channels at Luma and Bloom Official, and leave us a review where you can. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen today. We hope you had your own Luma moment.